Uh, friends, it, it, is, it is good to be with you again today. If this is your first time here, let me introduce myself for reals. Uh, my name is Ryan. I get the honor and privilege of serving as one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm excited for what the Lord has in store for us as we dive into his word together. Um, as we get started, and as I was thinking about this passage this week, I was reminded of one of the greatest love-hate relationships of my childhood, and it was my love-hate relationship with the Rubik's Cube. I mean, the Rubik's Cube was the original fidget toy. And as a child of the 80s and 90s, and yes, I just dated myself, uh, we, we would spend hours messing around with this thing. But if I'm brutally honest, the truth is, I never actually solved it. I, I kind of hated the Rubik's Cube. Now let me ask, by show of hands, how many of you have solved the Rubik's Cube? Oh man, you all need to go join Mensa, because... <laughs> Man, I sat for hours messing with that stupid thing until one day I remember in junior high a buddy of mine came over and he had this brilliant idea. He's like, dude, you are spending so much time trying to solve the Rubik's Cube. That's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. Just take the thing, soak it in water and start moving the stickers around. (laughs) And if you move the stickers around, you can trick everybody into thinking that you actually solved it. I was like, dude, why did this never occur to me? And you know, I think especially as we look at passages like the one before us today, the temptation that we face is to try and soak the Rubik's Cube in water. You know, to make sense of uh, difficult and complicated passages, we, we sometimes uh, try to read a grid on top of them in order to make them um, more understandable. And as we'll see in this passage that we'll look at today, which is notoriously known as one of the most difficult in the book of Daniel, Uh, We simply want to let the text speak for itself. And so I'm going to just tell you from the outset, spoiler alert, you're probably going to walk away with more questions than answers today. And that's entirely okay. Because as we look at this text, uh, two things are going to come out for us that I think are so incredibly important. On the first half of this text, we're going to see a, a section of scripture that I think oftentimes gets overlooked because of what follows it. And it's this beautiful prayer of confession that Daniel prays. And then following that are some glimpses into the future, uh, some insights into what the season ahead uh, will hold. And so as we begin, I want to start by looking at the words of Daniel in that prayer. And so if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open up with me in Daniel chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 16 to 19 together. As we read this, can I encourage you? um, We're not simply reading a text here but we're praying a prayer. And so with that, may we pray. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all those who are around us. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ears and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations, and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God because your city and your people are called by your name. Let's pray. So Jesus, as we come to your word today, we pray that you would guide us. 
Lord, even as we pray these words, we are reminded that the problem of sin is not just a problem distance to thousands of years ago, but it is one that affects us on a daily basis. God, as we look at your word today, we pray that even today, this would be a time of renewal, a time of confession, a time of transformation according to your great grace. And so, Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we look to you in your name. Amen. You know, friends, as I was looking at this prayer of Daniel this week, I was reminded that oftentimes when we come to prayers in Scripture, we often approach them more as an art critic than a poet. You know, we have this tendency to look at prayers like this and to pick apart the individual pieces and uh, to uh, break them into their component parts and miss out on the fact that first and foremost, these prayers are the heart cries of a people who long to see God with greater and deeper clarity. Add to that the fact that as I'm honest, as I look back on the experience that I had in church growing up, the whole idea of confession was something that never even really entered into our equation. You know, the idea of being intentional around the confession of sin and recognizing our desperate need for God was just something that we never walked into. And yet this passage is one of the most stunning and beautiful pictures of confession I'm convinced we find in the entire scripture. And so today I want to do something a little bit different. We're going to actually split this message into two parts. The first part, I want to look directly at this prayer that Daniel prays of confession. And then we'll move on uh, to look at this other section Uh, that looks towards the future. And so as we begin by looking at this idea of prayer, what I want to suggest to you is that what Daniel does here is he models for us a prayer of humility and repentance that looks with hope to the future. In fact, if you look here in chapter 9, you'll notice that uh, this prayer is occasioned uh, by some very specific circumstances. In verse 1, we're told that in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descendant Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Daniel is uh, looking throughout scripture and he's noticing the words of Jeremiah and Jeremiah the prophet uh, foretells that the desolations upon Jerusalem will last 70 years. Actually, he's making reference to Jeremiah 25, 11. And it's there that Jeremiah writes, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The question that he's asking is, God, how long? How long? How long until we see your redemption? You know, as he asked that question, and as I was uh, looking at these words of Jeremiah, I came across another passage that I think is incredibly significant for our understanding of the exile as a whole. It's found in the book of 2 Chronicles 36, 21. And there we're told to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths all the years All the days that it had laid desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. This is really fascinating. Because what the chronicler is telling us is that the cause and the source of the exile was a very specific sin on the part of the nation. You see, when God led Israel into the promised land, he told Israel that she was to observe a year of jubilee, a year in which the land rested, a year in which the, the, sin, or the, the debts of the nation were forgiven. And do you know how many times in Israel's history she celebrated that year of jubilee? Never. Never. 
And for 490 years, she existed in the promised land and lived in the promised land until finally the exile came. And when the exile came, did you notice how long they were carried off into captivity? 70 years. Each of the year of Sabbath that they were supposed to have taken over that 490-year period. And I don't, I don't want to belabor this point too much here, but I think it is worth mentioning that the sin that led to Israel's captivity was the failure to observe Sabbath. And in our busy culture that tells us to do more, to be more, to accomplish more, I find this warning about the significance and the importance of recognizing God is God to be so incredibly important for us today. But recognizing this, Daniel now in a very sweet and humble posture of humility turns his face to prayer. He asks this question of God, how long? And he begins to pray this beautiful prayer of repentance that I think illustrates for us four very important postures of confession, four important postures of prayer um, that we can bring as we come in an attitude of confession before the Lord. I think number one, Daniel's qualification was a simple willingness to pray. If you look with me in verse three, it says, then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him with prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Scholars are quick to note that in many ways for Daniel to offer this kind of prayer seems out of the ordinary. Because typically it would be a high priest. Typically it would be one among the nation that was especially trained and qualified in order to offer this kind of prayer on behalf of the nation. But here's Daniel. A man who has been human trafficked, sexually exploited, a slave in a remote land who simply makes a humble decision to turn his face towards God and pray, that God uses in such a profound way on behalf of the people. You know, friends, I'm aware more and more um, of times that I have walked with dear friends, and they say things like, oh, Ryan, you're the pastor, you pray. I mean, it's kind of a running joke in our family. Whenever we have family gatherings, and it's like, it's time to say grace, well, you got to call upon the token pastor. And I laugh at that, because here's the reality I am no more qualified to offer prayer before God than any of you. And oftentimes I have watched as God works deep movements of renewal in prayer, starting not first and foremost with the pastors, but starting with people who are willing to humble themselves before God and to take that risk of praying and seeking his face. Because friends, if if qualification and worthiness were the basis of prayer, I'll tell you, I'm the last person that you want standing up in front of here going before God. Because I'm a broken, prideful, sinful man, just like anybody else. And I think one of the great things that we can recognize in prayer is that prayer is not about some mystical formula. It's not about getting the words right. It's not about impressing somebody else with how profound our thoughts are. Daniel just merely comes with this humble willingness to turn his face towards God and to recognize that he needs God to show up, 
desperately. And as we'll see later in the passage, God hears that voice in such beautiful and profound ways. And it's here that I think Daniel models for us a second aspect of this posture of prayer. Because what Daniel does is he shows us that Daniel will pray in light of the recognition of who God is. Notice notice how he starts this prayer. This is so stunning in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and chesed, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly. Did you notice the starting point of Daniel's prayer? It wasn't, oh God, I suck. It was, God, I know who you are. You are the God of steadfast love. You are the God who keeps covenant promises with your people. You are the God who has shown your faithfulness to Israel again and again and again. And as desperate as we are in this moment, as evident as our sin is, we come before you not because we're worthy, but because we know who you are. Friends, when you go to confession, who is the God you come before? Is he the guy with the big beard and the lightning bolt ready to zap in the rear end, the first person that gets out of line? Or is he a loving and a gracious God who is willing to send his son to the cross that you and I might know his grace, mercy, and redemption. You know, if I'm brutally honest in my life, oftentimes the hardest part of confession is not the act of confessing. It's receiving the promise that it's really been forgiven. It's anchoring my life in the goodness of his mercy, love, and grace rather than the sin that feels so close and evident in the moment. You know, this week I was reminded of the words of the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews when he says in Hebrews chapter 4, 16, let us then with confidence approach the throne or draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Uh, That word, uh, let us with confidence, it's actually a Yiddish word. It's the word chutzvah. Have you guys ever heard that word in other contexts? It's this idea of a gutsy grace. It's like, it's like the kid that jumps on stage when there's a middle of a performance and they like shut everything down. Or it's the picture of the kids that run in on dad's important business meeting uh, on Zoom and says, hey, I'm here and I know I can come because I know who my dad is. And in much the same way, Daniel models for us a kind of prayer that's willing to come with this kind of gutsy confidence because he knows that God is good and God forgives. What would it look like if we began to come with that same kind of posture and confidence as we confess our sin before God? Don't you long for that? But can I suggest to you that here Daniel will throw us, show us a third posture as well? You know, the temptation, I think, in our culture is to say, look, God is, God is all good and all loving. And so because of that, there isn't a consequence for the sin and the brokenness of our life. And yet the bulk of this prayer is Daniel acknowledging both his fault and the consequence that his sin has brought. Uh, we find that running from verse 4 all the way through verse 15. <clears throat> I mean, I, I, I look at 
sections of this passage, excuse me, <clears throat> like verse 9. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and we have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us in the servants of the prophets. All Israel has transgressed against your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that were written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. Daniel is recognizing we sinned. We were the ones in error. And the consequence of our sin is that it has brought destruction and brokenness in our lives. But if I'm honest, there are times and seasons of my life where my prayers of confession look like, you know, God, I'm coming before you and I'm confessing this sin, but if I'm honest, you know, you put these difficult circumstances in my life, so I'm allowed to have this pet sin. And so, yeah, I'm sorry, but... Uh, you know, I, I figure I kind of get it because of how hard other areas of my life are. Or we say things like, God, at least I'm not as bad as the guy next to me. Yes, 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 I'm sinful. Yes, yes, I'm prideful. But hey, I've never murdered anybody. And we miss out on just how destructive and broken the sin of our life really is. And I believe that part of the journey of transformation becomes in the humble acknowledgement that we are desperately broken and in need of the grace and the mercy of God. That our indifference to God is not just an issue of time. It's an issue of misplaced affection. That that look at the computer screen isn't just an innocent glance. But it's something that draws us away from God's heart for us. That our indifference to the broken, the marginalized, is not just an issue of, of, of a distraction. But it is a, a picture of the places in which our hearts need to come more and more aligned with his. And I think one of the most humbling and important places that we can come in our journey is to acknowledge just how broken and messed up we really are. But to do it in the hope of who God is. That's why I like to put it this way. You know, as I look at my own life, I am more broken than I could ever comprehend. And I am more loved than I could ever imagine. And the journey of walking with Jesus is holding both of those truths in tension. Because both are the reality of who I am. But can I suggest one other thing that I see in Daniel's posture of prayer that's so incredibly important for us? Is not only does Daniel come with a, with a qualification of a simple willingness to pray, not only does Daniel come recognizing who God is, not only does Daniel embrace his fault, but do you notice the destination of his prayer? He ultimately prays for God's glory. He says in verse 16, O Lord, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem. And then he skips down and he says in verse 17, O Lord, for your own sake. Skip down to verse 19. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake. Oh my God. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Notice the motive 
behind Daniel's prayer of repentance. It is not, God, take away the consequence. It is not, God, make me feel better. It is not, God, absolve me, though he knows that all those things will come because of the goodness of God. His prayer is rooted in the desire to see God glorified first and foremost. Friends, a humbling and honest question I think we can ask in our own journey. When we go before God in confession, is our primary goal simply to see the removal of consequence? Or is it to see God glorified? For those of you who are parents, you've had that experience of your kids coming to you and you, they got busted. And they say, Dad, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you forgive them and they go out and they do the same thing again. And you realize that the sorry was rooted more in the elimination of consequence than it was the desire to do things right. And yet as I watch my own kids do that, I realize I'm 10 times worse than they are. And the humble invitation that we have in a passage like this is to get serious about the sin and the brokenness of our own life. Again, I just, I'm reminded in my own life, I don't have met very many models in church of how to do confession well. I know passages that say things like that we're to confess our sin to one another. And yet I, I found in my own life that it is the, in the moments that before God, I bring what is in the darkness into the light. I experience some of his greatest and deepest redemption in my life. In fact, I want to show you something that goes on in this passage. We're told in verse 20 that while Daniel was speaking and praying, confessing his sin and the sin of his people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, the angel Gabriel appears to him. And then in verse 23, Gabriel tells him something very significant about his prayer. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. Oh, for you are greatly loved. In the midst of Daniel confessing his brokenness and his sin and his desperate need for God, the word of the angel is this. You are greatly loved. Is that the posture we come with as we come to confession? Yes, my sin is so ugly and disgusting that it sent Christ to the cross. But my sinfulness is not the ultimate reality of this life. It is the goodness of a God who has said, you are mine. And I, once and for all, will pay the price for that sin. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And as I mentioned before, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to take about five minutes. And just between you and God, I want to invite you into a time of confession. Maybe as I've been sharing these words, there's been some area of sin that has come up in your life. Uh, some area that God is inviting you uh, to get right with him. Not because, um, not because you'll escape a, a consequence. Not because you, know, you need to look good before God. But in the humble invitation to go before the throne of grace and confidence in our time of need. I wonder, as you bring that thing before him, can you receive his forgiveness as well as confess it? To trust that as far as the east is from the west, so he has removed our sins from us. 
beyond that. Notice that Daniel doesn't just pray for his personal sins, but he prays for the sins of others. The impact that the sins of others have had. You know, as I look at my own life, I realize how often I go before God and I confess my own personal brokenness and I miss the brokenness of the world around me. And I think walking in that freedom begins in a simple willingness to let God break our hearts for those places. And so I'd simply ask you today, where is God inviting you to break your heart for the sins of others? So we're going to take, like I said, five minutes and just before the Lord, uh, lay these things before him as he shapes and transforms us. Let me open us in a word of prayer and we'll go into that time together. And then we'll close by singing a song in this section. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the God of Hesed. Holy Father, you walked with your people in the wilderness. They failed you again and again and again, and still you said, they're mine. God, I pray particularly for any here who are either coming into a place where maybe they've not said to you, God, I want to receive that grace. I want to follow you with my life. Or God, perhaps those that here are carrying sins that maybe nobody else knows about and they long for freedom. Oh God, we come before you today and we throw our sins before you. Not because we're worthy, not because we're good enough, not because we could ever be good enough, but because you are enough. Jesus, I just pray by your spirit, wash over our hearts today. Cleanse us. In your name. Let's pray together.